I'm Verite, and you're listening to Anatomy of an Artist, a podcast about people, the art they create, and the business behind their art. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Anatomy of an Artist. My guest this week is singer, songwriter, and phenomenal vocalist, Reese Lewis. Reese and I had a really interesting and in-depth conversation about how he's managed to balance his relationship with his label and the expectation that brings with his artistry and the music and world that he wants to create. We got to talk about the role of an A&R in the creation of an album and how laser-focused one needs to be to pursue a career in music and the mentality he's developed in order to make that sustainable. And honestly, the microphones on the iPhone are pretty great. I'm annoyed at how good they are because every now and again, I'll do a little take of a a demo on my phone and then I'll record it with nice posh mics and I'll go, there's not as much vibe. And the microphone just seems to just do something to the audio that makes it really cool. So it's sometimes a better mic than the mics I have in this studio, which is annoying. I honestly love that. I think that every once in a while I'll do the same. I have an old Radio Shack mic. I don't know if you guys had Radio Shack over there, but it's like a bad electronic store. And uh, they're out of business. And it's, you know, it sounds really bad and distorted, but if you compress it and process it in the right way, it actually sounds amazing. And then you, I'm always tempted to re-record these vocals on, you know, this Neumann right here. And it's like, mm, it kind of sounds good how it is. It's like bad guitars. Sometimes a really cheap guitar, I find, is like inspires a, a part more than a really expensive one. And it just has its own sort of timbre that you can't kind of find in an, an expensive guitar, but it's actually a lot nicer. So you, you seem to have a lot of analog gear where you are. How important is it to have real equipment and real instruments and warm and organic sounds in your recording process? Well, I've always been drawn to that sort of process and that sound, really. And um, I think it suits the music I write. I think based on the kind of music I grew up listening to, it's something I've always been yeah, drawn to as a sound. And I think the, the way I want my music to sound is quite organic and quite um, honest. And I think those kinds of instruments really w- work with that kind of music and that sentiment. But it's, it's actually, to talk a bit about the analogue side of this whole thing, I actually got into it through Aidan, who you just saw passing a cup of tea to me, because he's been sort of working in this analog way for a long time using a desk and a tape machine you can't see it's out of shot but it's just right here I've actually just turned it off because it's so loud when it's on I thought it wouldn't be good to be rumbling in the background but yeah it's um it's an amazing thing because obviously technology affords us so many wonderful opportunities and it can help us fix our mistakes and make us sound better than we are and all of these things but what's really nice about working in a more analog way is that you're promoted to be more musical um, and to use your ears more instead of your eyes and your heart more instead of your head. And I think there are lots of reasons why this process for me has started to kind of bring the joy back uh, when, when it comes to making music, because I think for a long time I got a little bit obsessed with making things quote-unquote perfect, um, especially mm-hmm. with fixing things in the box or doing thousands of takes and then comping one. And when you work in this way, it doesn't 
allow you to do those things. It kind of changes the way you think about music, the way you think about yourself and your own performance. And it is difficult, it's hard, and it's, I think, harder. But then actually, in some ways, it's easier because it stops you worrying about things that don't really matter. Because especially when you realise that most people that listen to your music in the end hear it either on the train or, you know, at home and it's in the background and they're not listening in the way that you know um, you are when you're listening to your own music. You're listening to it in a very kind of sometimes anxious way, sometimes technical way. And ultimately people listen to it, you know, from from here. And, and I think it's always important to remember that. And I think working in an analogue way makes you more closely sort of connected to that side of music. So I think it's been a joy to have all of these you know, instruments and pieces of equipment around to encourage and remind us that we're making music for that reason and not to be perfect, basically. It kind of goes back to what we we're saying right at the start here with guitars and instruments and microphones that you could spend £12,000 on a microphone and think it sounds amazing and you do, and then you do the same vocal through a £20 microphone that you found at Radio Shack and it's got more emotional engage, emotional impact to the people that are listening because they don't care how much your microphone is. They don't care whether you got it from, if it's vintage or whether you got it from an amazing store or a really cheap one. They just care how it makes them feel. And I think that's something we always have to remind ourselves is that just because it's expensive or just because it's done in the right way doesn't make it right. You know, it doesn't make it the right thing. So I think, yeah, it's, it's interesting as a concept to think about when we make music, I suppose. Yeah. I definitely feel like in the music industry in general, sometimes there's this idea that bigger is better and more expensive is better. And those are the only qualities that we're kind of putting towards better. And it's all about initially the feeling and kind of where you land with it. I want to take it back to like young Reese. And I'm curious, uh, when you were younger, what was your idea of success? Well, that's a great question. I suppose in terms of an image, it was probably a room full of people singing a song of mine. That would have been success in its kind of simplest and purest form. I thought if people kind of come to see a show and they're singing my song back at me, I feel like that's a success. Um, so, yeah, that was that was it, I suppose. And I, I remember just watching, you know, like live concerts and going to concerts and thinking, I really hope I have this feeling one day on stage where people have come to see my music and are singing it back to me. I think that's an amazing, it's an amazing thing to be a part of as an audience member, to be able to kind of be unified by this moment with your favourite artist or band in a room full of people. And especially now I'm dreaming of that because I haven't been in a room full of people for so long. So yeah, I think that was my idea of what success was. If, you, if I went to see my favourite bands when I was growing up, that would always be the moment where you just felt so connected and kind of inspired by what they were doing on stage and it was always that I think it was always that live moment for me when I was growing up what was your early experience like playing and writing when did you start writing when did you start performing I started well I started um learning guitar that was my main kind of passion when I was growing up I, I actually learned clarinet for a while and then I, mm-hmm. I realised I was being forced to practice the clarinet, not wanting to practice the clarinet. And so I think I wanted to find a different instrument that I enjoyed. And then as soon as I found the guitar, it's actually my dad had an old guitar in the corner of the room that was getting dusty because he never played it. And then one day I just said, oh, dad, can you teach me something on the guitar? And he taught me the blues, the, you know, the three chords that we've all grown so used to as, as guitarists and musicians. 
And that was just the simplest way for me to understand that instrument. And instantly I was addicted because I just wanted to get to know more about the blues and started to listen to lots of different blues records and blues guitarists. And then uh, it became just, a, yeah, as I say, a bit of an obsession where I, I wanted to just get better at guitar and learn everything about it. And my my mum my actually would have to tell me to not practice because I would just spend all day inside on a sunny summer's day playing guitar. And she's like, you need to go outside and stop playing guitar and get some fresh air. So it was, it was a bit unhealthy at times, but in a good way, because I definitely felt like I'd found something I really loved musically. And I did, I, I knew I liked music, but I didn't know I loved music until I found the guitar and found that as an outlet. And also the bands I was listening to were all sort of guitar-based bands. So it made it easier to then suddenly try to imitate what they were doing and learn the songs that I loved as opposed to the clarinet tracks I was learning. It was like classical music. And it, yeah, it just became something I, I, I found really inspiring to just sit down and do every day. And then from that point on, I just was, I was in bands with my brothers and then in bands with my friends as a guitarist. And then when my brothers went off to university and my friends went off to university, I was, I was actually not sure what I was going to do. I was just working as a chef and trying to work out whether I wanted to pursue music as a career or not. And that's when I was sort of encouraged to write songs because I had no bandmates. So I had to start singing on my own and playing on my own. So I just started to go to open mic nights in my nights off my uh, chefing job. And then, yeah, one thing turned to another. And then I thought, I love this a lot. I really want to carry on writing songs. So I start. I started to, I actually went to uni to study music and then carried on and then just kept writing songs, really. That's kind of how it started. I mean, at that point, did you view music as a viable career path? And did you have a plan to move forward in that? Or was it just one foot in front of the other? It was a bit one foot in front of the other. I, I think I'd heard about songwriters. I actually didn't want to be an artist. Um, some days I don't know if I do still, <laughs> even though I am one, apparently. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I moved to London because I wanted to be a songwriter because I'd heard about and it was a, a, such a new idea to me that people I'd heard on the radio, bands that I liked, had songwriters behind them. And songwriters are attached to these massive songs I loved, uh, you know, on top of the band who were write, bands who were writing them or the artists who were writing them. So I thought, oh, if there's these people behind the artists that do this songwriting thing. I was so scared of performing at the time that I thought maybe that's a better option for me to just learn how to write songs really well and then hopefully be, be able to write songs for other people. So I, it was a bit of like you know, one foot in front of the other in, in that respect, because I just thought, hey, it's a career, but I don't know if I can make it. But at least if I go to university and get a degree, even if it doesn't work out, I've got some kind of qualification, some kind of education, and I can be a teacher or I can whatever. I just thought it's a good step to try. And also to be in London. I think being in London without a student loan, because in the UK, you know, you get a big loan to go to university, you've got to pay back, but it's, it allows you the, you know, if you can't afford it normally, it allows you to just go and try something out like that and move to another city. And it meant that I could spend three years making music and finding out what I liked about music and get better at it without the pressure of making money straight away. So, yeah, it was kind of studying it. New, I felt like the right thing to do musically and kind of sort of for my future to know that there was always a safe bet in a, in a way of falling back on some kind of education, which is a bit, well, it's not very rock and roll, but it kind of worked. What was your first introduction to the music industry proper? Like you're in college, you're writing songs, you're figuring it out. When was there some sort of like opening in that tunnel? When my 
tutor asked if he if I sorry when my when my music tutor said could I be your manager because I'm in the music industry and I've got oh. like yeah and I thought hang on if if my tutor thinks he wants to manage me then I thought I must be doing something you know right and maybe I mean he, he turned out to not be the right person to manage me and it wasn't the right idea but it was more of a I kind of thought oh that's that's cool if 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 he thinks I'm good enough to you know he sees potential in me to to do something I thought that's good. And then I, I started to write songs and realised I wanted to sing them myself. So I, I got more into the kind of performance of my own music. And I think that was when I realised I actually really liked kind of expressing myself personally. So, you know, I, not just writing songs for other people, but going, actually, I, I feel like this is a, a really great outlet for me to to say these things and to process certain things. And it's quite a powerful thing, really. It's quite a empowering um, as as you as you know, like to, to be able to kind of write something, put it out there, and get a response, it's it's a it's a real privilege. So when I when I got that reaction from something I first put on YouTube, I thought that's pretty pretty amazing, really. So yeah, that's kind of where I got more into the idea of potentially singing the songs I was writing. But in terms of like an industry break, it was quite late, really. I'm, I I went the whole way through university, kind of feeling like when I left university, I'd I'd start to kind of figure it out and. And then I got into um, writing music for adverts because I needed to pay my rent. And then my, my mate said, oh, there's this thing if you want to kind of do some production work and basically write songs for commercials, you can give it a go. So I did that. And that was what helped me stay in London. And it gave me a year or two to just work out what I was doing artistically. And that's when I started to put more stuff online. And then literally, I, I'd actually been speaking to a few managers and then in a few weeks later I was getting an email or two from labels after putting something on SoundCloud and it felt like very out of the blue because I assumed at that point that you needed 50,000 followers on Instagram, you needed you know, loads of Spotify mm -hmm. plays and I just thought I'm so far off that but I'll just, you know, first step is I'll put some music online and when I did I, I got a really great re response from a few labels that started emailing so it was really out of the blue and really kind of unexpected I suppose. In that process, I guess, what was your perception of labels and the relationship between an artist and a label? At that point, I thought that it's the be all and end all. And it was about six years ago. And I, and I in my head, I'd, I'd been working sort of so, so hard in my, in my own little world, trying to get lots of songs together, working with producers and songwriters unsigned and doing all this stuff and every songwriter you meet's like, oh, and are you signed? And they go, oh, cool, yeah, you still got, you know, looking for, a, looking for a deal and whatnot. So it felt like from all of the industry people I met that a label at that time was the most important thing to get and that a record deal is amazing. And so when it came along, I was sort of head over heels, kind of, you know, got to go for it sort of thing. And it's been amazing. I, I love my label. But then, you know, as, as, as you you know, you sort of go through the industry and you meet people who are unsigned and people who have got their own labels and things like that. I never really figured that out before. Not to say it would have changed my decision. It, it might have done, but I never really had that option on the table or in my mind when I was signing a deal. So that's the one thing I think maybe if I'd known it was more viable or there was a viable option to be unsigned or to kind of work with someone like a wall or whatever it might be potentially I'd have gone maybe that's a good idea because labels are amazing and I don't want to bitch about my label because <laughs> they are great no don't worry no but there's some there's some there's like with everything with every relationship there comes issues and so you've got to take 
the rough with the smooth. I get so much from my label and I'm very grateful for what they've done for me and my music and my career. But then there's sometimes when I'm like, oh, it would be so good if I was just able to do whatever I wanted. And there's sometimes you can't do that with a label. So, But it, it was it, at the time, it was an amazingly exciting moment to be kind of working with also a, a record label who are the oldest label in the UK and have such a wealth of music and history. And to be a part of that in a small way was was very exciting. No, I understand because I had the exact same perception of like a major label. It was like you get discovered, you get signed and then you're good. Right. You've made it. And you're going to be successful. Yeah. 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 And then that idea of my younger version of success, which was, you know, playing Madison Square Garden and, you know, being on MTV, it's all going to come true. And it's funny because I've been talking to so many different artists and I've never I've been independent for my whole career. And I think that honestly, it's it's probably, it's like just different problem. When you're signed to a label, there's a lot of good that comes from it. And then there's a lot of bad. And being independent, there's a lot of good that comes with it. And then there's, you know, the pitfalls and the things that are much harder because of it. And so I, I just feel like being informed, whatever path that you're taking, I guess that's why we're having this conversation because we weren't necessarily so informed. Hindsight's twenty twenty. That like whatever path you're taking, know what you value. For me, I really value autonomy. Like I need autonomy. And so the independent path really works for me because I get all of the autonomy that I could ever possibly get. And then there's also the major label path. It's just like they have resources that aren't even comparing to what I can put up. And so I think that it's about what do you value and what do you want and kind of plotting that before signing contracts I think is really valuable and I wish I had had more forethought yeah I'm I'm totally the same I think I felt a bit kind of green and a bit um a bit yeah ignorant to the whole industry and I suppose it would have been nice to instead of becoming sort of um becoming aware of these things whilst in a deal going, ah, okay, Mm. that's the way it works. Um, I wish I'd have had a bit more experience or a bit more knowledge about how it's going to feel. And as you say, what you value compared to what a company is going to be able to offer you or a a major contract like that's going to be able to allow you to do. Um, And so, yeah, as you say, it's everything comes with different problems, but it's just kind of what aligns with the way you need to work and what makes you feel most inspired and sort of, I suppose, productive in a way. So, um, yes, it's a really interesting one. And, and, and it's something I've, I've learned, I think, to, to work with a major label through the course of even that first record I made. It's like I, I look back and I go, I, I didn't even know, I didn't even get it then. I, there were so many things I think I could have um, made that record totally differently and I could have stood held my ground on those moments and I could have pushed in those moments and... It's almost like every every sort of step you go with a major label is is a learning curve for me. And even when I'm making this second one now, I go, I've got more confidence about what I can do with my music and what I want from it and what I can ask for and what I can demand and also maybe what I can give back on. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of push and pull. And I think the more you go through it, hopefully the more you get used to the way you can amplify what you're doing through a major label, because... That's what's great, I think, about unsigned artists. They get to do things really differently and they can do things on their own terms, on their own time, without the same kind of restrictions and and, uh, red tape and things like that. And sometimes with a major label, you feel like you're slightly 
kind of singing to their tune and their their sort of rhythm and actually I'm learning how to kind of make the most of my music and my artistry through through their kind of yeah through their lens I suppose well and you spent a lot of time on your first record and I feel like there's a lot in there and in that process you scrapped a whole record and fired your manager so I'm just curious what is the emotional toll that took and then what was the practical toll it took to finish that record and the process behind it great question the emotional toll it's it's only sort of looking back on it after a bit of distance from even just scrapping one album and starting another one it did feel like a really um at the time it felt like a really healthy thing to do and i was writing a different style of in a different style of music i suppose and and I felt like my 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 writing was improving, but actually it it sl- slightly made me second guess a lot of things as well because working on that record the first time I was doing what I felt was right for me and what I believed in, and I was doing things in a quite a musical way and quite a sort of authentic way, and then I slightly got kind of influenced by voices at my label and old manager and all of these things to to potentially try and be a bit more commercial and try and write songs in a certain vein and produce songs in a certain way. And I guess I started to get seduced by that as well because I go, oh, yeah, you know, it would be quite cool to get played on Radio 1 and it would be quite, you know, may as well add drums to that song even though it was an acoustic track, you know. And I think I slowly, over the course of making those two records, obviously the one that got scrapped and the, the new one, I feel like I held on to a lot of things and learned a lot, but I also feel like I gave away a lot of things that potentially my first record that, again, didn't make make it out, kind of got right. And so looking back on the whole thing, I, I see one album where it was just kind of uninfluenced me as as what I would do naturally. And then the second album, which was slightly more A&R'd and maybe overthought on every level from me, from my manager, from uh, to, to my label. You know, it was too many opinions and they didn't quite allow the... The process to just flow and for me to just make music and let it come out and so it was a difficult one because I, I then started to doubt things a lot more and then try to mix things and make you know produce things that were perhaps not to my taste but to the kind of trend or the you know the the Lewis Capaldi's of the world or the whatever you start to get oh I need to sit up against those people because they're successful and you think does it why can't I just do what I do and be happy about that and so that's been the the tough thing about working with a label and being A&R'd by a label is you sometimes feel like you're being pressured to kind of move your music into a certain lane and do a certain thing. But that's what I felt like anyway for, for being a sort of yeah. male, male singer-songwriter. And actually, I feel like I I just... This second record, I'm having so much fun and actually the writing feels like it's a lot more um, kind of free and interesting because of that, that I'm I'm sort of touching on subjects that otherwise would have felt a little bit off, I don't know, out, out of that lane of that singer-songwriter thing. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I think emotionally it, it did kind of impact on me quite a lot at having to sort of reevaluate what I was doing as an artist and doubt whether my taste was right. And, and again, practically, it was a lot of work. It took a long time to really get two albums of music together, and which was in a way, amazing, because I learned a lot. I've worked with these guys down on the Isle of Wight called Bo Weaver, and they are incredible producers and engineers, and to sit next to them and watch what they do 
has been invaluable and uh, just the way that they work is, is a really inspiring thing to watch. And the same goes for Aidan, who I work with at the minute. We're doing things in a really, really enjoyable way. We're getting string quartets to come in and play string parts that we've written at the piano and we're recording it all to tape. And, and I feel like that's all prepared me. All of those experiences have prepared me to, to hopefully make a better second record and a more truthful one to who I am and what I want to do as an artist. So even though it's been a bit of a long journey, it feels like I'm, I'm, I've learned enough now to kind of put something together that feels very, yeah, genuine, which, which is, I suppose, what you want to do as an artist. You want to just put out what you truly believe in. And I think that's taken me a while to get to that point. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people don't understand or even know about like the A&R process at the at a major label and it's I've never had an A&R so it's I'm always really curious just the dynamic and the push and pull and kind of how that communication happens because I feel like as artists we want to make the art that we want to make and then at least for me there's part of me that then thinks oh how do I make this commercially viable because I want the most people to listen to this and in that balance and I feel like in the UK um being a male singer-songwriter with a phenomenal voice, right? That is, I feel like, the UK's number one export, right? And <laughs> the pressure to conform to, like, a Lewis Capaldi type or even, like, a Sam Smith, that's, yeah, Sam Smith type, right? And all of this must be really difficult to navigate. And so I'm just curious, like, what those conversations were like and I guess what was the label looking for in terms of production and then how were you trying to balance the art with mm. the commercial yeah well I think so in there's a there's a song on the record called what if and actually it was a song that initially was just going to be a piano ballad and maybe we're going to get some kind of string quartet on it or do something slightly more stripped back and intimate with it and it became a song that to the label they could hear something quite commercial in it. And I suppose it's a, you know, it's a, it's a pop song structure. It's, you know, it's not like I'm writing Nick Drake songs, but um, yeah, it, it, it kind of had something in it that felt like it could fit alongside that kind of music. And so I guess in terms of the a and it was like, we need big drums on this. We want to kind of cut that section, cut that, you know, make, make it a bit shorter Make, you know, here's some reference mixes, you know, the Lewis Capaldi's of the world, um, given as, as a sort of mix reference for the kind of weight of things and, and the kind of shine of it all. And I think that's where it comes in is, is, is something that you initially, and actually I, don't, I wasn't even sure if I wanted that song on the record. And so then it's heard, but, you know, the label love it. Manager thinks it's going to be a great pop song. And so you, you kind of end up feeling like you're, well, and it's, this is just my experience, of obviously. I felt like I was almost producing a record on my album to a brief you know like to, to something that was kind mm -hmm. of um th this is what it needs to be or this is what it should be and this is this is how we hear it and I think this could be a really good one at radio so let's try and and you know what these these conversations are all out of love and they're all out of kind of wanting this project that they're involved in to be as successful as possible so I, I i always and i i respect the opinions of the people i i i work with and but it, you also have to remember that their their opinions are also the opinions not just of themselves but of the label they represent and their job is to make something as successful as possible and sometimes that's to make it 
more commercial. And not every time, but there are these songs where it feels like that can happen. And yeah, there's there were a few on the on the record where I, I thought I really don't want those to have drums and I would rather keep it as a piano ballad or I'd rather keep it as just guitar. And before you know it, you've got three songs that were supposed to be ballads and suddenly they've got big drums on them. And I, that's my fault for not sort of sticking with my guns and, you know, truthfully kind of going, I, I believe that this is the right thing to do. But when you're trying to be a team player and you're trying to take on these opinions, it's really difficult to sometimes judge whether you should be trusting your own instincts and your own opinions or trusting the people who, you know, they've been in this industry a long time and, and they are another set of ears. And sometimes you get too close to your own work to know whether that's the right or wrong thing to do. So I, I think I've learnt to perhaps stick with my, or, you know, listen to my own instincts more and stick to my guns on those things and know that it's okay to take someone's opinion on board and politely say, I disagree and I'm going to you know, go with what I initially thought myself. And maybe there's a danger of, for me of wanting to, to to not come across as too arrogant to not take on other people's opinions. But at a point, maybe it's okay to stick to your guns and not, it's not like you're not being a team player, but sometimes if you're trying to express something, it's best to express it from your own, you know, from your own opinion and your own tastes and, and your own kind of way of your own vision basically follow your own vision and see it through and then if people don't think it's right then it doesn't matter because you made it the way you wanted to make it well and I think it's really smart just from like an outsider's perspective because I do definitely understand the struggle of having a team and you want everyone to feel ownership and motivated in the project, et cetera. So like you, you want to hear all of these voices. So it is a really precarious balance. But one thing that I love that you did on this record was it seems like you have produced out versions and then you kind of have alts. Like you have these different versions of songs that seem to like live together. And I think that that feels really smart and like the best kind of compromise. It's like, cool, we can have the uh, full uh, produced version so long as there is a stripped back version that can live beside it and kind of show two different worlds and two different potentials for the song. And I feel like in the UK especially, and, and I would love for you to speak on this, because it's such a smaller market than like the US, everything is really funneled uh, commercially between like Radio 1 and Radio 2. And I feel like there's a lot of stigma around those radio stations. Well, if you're played on Radio 1, you're this. And if you, you're played on Radio 2, you're this. And so I guess, was that part of that conversation of like, we need Radio 1 music and you're trying to make Radio 2 music? Massively. Like to the point that it makes me angry thinking about it because I, don't, I truly <laughs> couldn't care less whether it's played on Radio 1 or Radio 2. I I care that I get to, you know, make music and put it out and it be enjoyed by people that come to the shows. And, you know, that's a much more amazing thing to to experience. And there there is such a stigma between Radio 1 and Radio 2. And for, for, for what reason, I, I, I do get it, but I don't see why it's such a big thing, especially when, you know, as, as, as an artist, I've been lucky enough to kind of gain a following through streaming. And that's been an amazing platform for me. And for most artists that don't get played on the radio, that is the way of connecting with fans. It's social media, it's streaming. And it feels so silly sometimes to put so much weight on that being the route to success that you sort of forget 
the other kind of successes you're having and the other people that listen to your music. And obviously it's amazing to get played on the radio and it's something I wouldn't ever turn down, of course, but it's not the be all and end all and it shouldn't be something that you're chasing or, you know, changing yourself for. And I, and I think th that that's where I feel like I sort of let myself down a little bit by trying to, you know, trust the people whose opinions about radio were telling me, you know, this should be, have drums on it and this should be produced in a certain way and it should be a bit quicker and blah, blah, blah. And those things, it's like these tiny conversations and these tiny comments, but when you add it all up, it does completely change what you're, what you're, what you're making. And it suddenly isn't what you're doing. It's what a load of people who are thinking about music are trying to kind of design. And I think sometimes it's great to include people, other people's opinions in what you're doing, but other times it can be a bit of a, a danger to, to listen to those voices. I want to talk about the drive that it takes to make a career in music work. And I know you've talked about this a bunch, um, but I do feel like, at least on my end, right, you need to have this singular focus, right? It needs to be everything and kind of all encompassing. And in your experience, what's the fallout from that? You know, what are the sacrifices that you as a person have to make to accommodate this career and life that you love, essentially? So, you know, in my view, it's all worth it. But I'm curious your experience with that. Well, I definitely think for, a, for about three or four years, I was sort of unhealthily kind of putting all my time into music. And I think I lost touch with a few friends. I lost a few relationships in the process and kind of, I get, yeah, you, you, you give everything and therefore there's not much time for anything else. And sometimes that's amazing when you're getting a lot back from it. But there was a point in my life where I felt like that kind of sacrifice wasn't quite paying off or wasn't quite worth it. And also maybe you have to live as well to be able to fuel your, you know, your, your, your kind of your thoughts and your inspiration and your passion for what you're doing. And if it's suddenly becomes a bit too heavy on, on one thing, if you don't have as much to write about, you're not living, you know, it sounds like such a cliche, but you need to live to write about stuff and you need to experience things other than yourself and your music to be able to be inspired. And I think there was a point where in my life, certainly where a lot of, I'm, you know, I love to, love to do lots of other things other than music but I think all I was doing at one point was music and so for me I found that having a bit more of a balance overall made me more kind of um I guess a lot more chilled out when it came to music and a, a lot more um I can't, I can't I can't think of the word but almost like I had more energy for it and more ideas because I was bringing ideas from outside of it back into music and sometimes when you're in a in music when I'm in my project too much it becomes like it's, it feels a bit hollow because you're not you're not getting any experience or any kind of thoughts from other people and other ideas from elsewhere. And I think I was going too hard for, for too long on just one avenue. So I think opening up my life to other things again was was a really nice moment to actually get a bit of balance back and enjoy my friendships more and you know, go to go to my mates' weddings instead of going to festivals. And that's what this last year of kind of no gigs lockdown life's been interesting for is I've actually had time to even though it's been a bit weird I've actually had time to see my friends more and see my family and take a few you know more weekends off and have a summer for the first time in a long time because of not doing festival season and it's been really nice truthfully like I, I've enjoyed not having to sacrifice those things for 
some terrible gigs in really bad <laughs> festivals and like really crappy slots and you know like sometimes you come back from a weekend doing like that and you think is this really worth it to miss my mate's wedding for a gig that I'm told is a really good opportunity and you get there and it's like a bad sound check followed by no one listening and a really crappy drive home with a shit sandwich on a motorway it's like not sure so yeah I think it's put into perspective the sacrifices you do make and whether those, for me, have been worth it sometimes. And I think it's, yeah, for me, it's just about finding balance between doing it and having a life outside of it because it can be so all-encompassing and, yeah, a, a bit of an obsession. So it's about managing that, I suppose. Yeah, I definitely, you know, historically have been just so focused this is what I'm doing. I need to do this and everyone else must understand. And quite frankly, at the core, I do still feel that way. I'm very lucky that just everyone in my life is equally as focused and driven on what they're doing. And so there's kind of like a respect for that in a lot of ways, like especially in family and relationships and friendships, etc. And I do think that quarantine has definitely reset a lot of that focus. I lived with my parents for what four months I went upstate and it was really interesting to just like go on walks with my mom and like have everything kind of revert back to the simple and so I think that is key and it's funny because I, I read an interview with you where you talked about one of your relationships ending right because it was like that kind of choice and I think that as like artists also when you do have like a partner it's really hard to kind of find a partner who will understand that and it's like okay no I gotta go on tour like I have to go on tour right it, it's not a question of this is what I am driven to do and so finding that balance with people of being honest and also telling them what you need it has been really, I don't know, it's trial and error, you know what I mean? It is. Yeah, I think the more I, you, you definitely need to be the, with the right person who understands that kind of drive or that need to do something or that need to be shut off for a whole week or whatever doing something that you love. And it can be very isolating for that person on the other side and, and yourself. Like I think you lock people out of your life sometimes when you're so focused on what you're doing. But if someone else is doing that as well and they've got their own little mission, when you come back together, it, you don't feel guilty about the time you spent apart. You feel excited again. And I think perhaps the relationship that kind of ended because of me being so focused on my music was because the, the person I was with at the time didn't seem to want that. They, she, she wasn't as kind of focused on her own thing at the time. So it meant that when I was busy doing something and on tour she didn't have that other thing to to sort of, I don't know, she didn't quite get it, maybe. And, and, and I think if you're not with someone who gets it in that respect, it can feel like you're just a real, you're just really distant and really not not into it. And I think sometimes I've, I've been really happy in a relationship and I've been, I felt fine about everything that's going on. And then the person I'm with at the time has gone, you, you, you never you're not making enough time for me you're, you're never around and, and I, I'm thinking shit nothing's wrong but then to the other person on the other side of it they don't they, they, it's completely different so it's 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 just again about communication and you know just having lots of conversations about it and, and knowing where each other sits in, in in that line between kind of obsession and <laughs> I, I guess work I'm like it's all obsession 
So we're nearing the end and I really appreciate you coming on and uh, talking about all of this with me. But I have I have two more little questions. One, you're a writer kind of similar to me that seems to just like inject your ex- experience into your songs and into your writing. And it's really apparent that it's just like full vulnerability. Do you think that you need to ask permission to release a song that you write about someone else? Well, I think I've always, in a, in a sort of subtle way, I think I always have, because I've often sent the song to that person before it's come out and just said, here's a song I wrote about that thing, and I thought you should hear it first. And if, they were, if there was any of it, you know, I don't know what I'd say if they said, I don't want you to release this. But yeah, I, yeah. but I've I've never sort of bad mouthed anyone, and I've I've always thought that the songs I've written have, even if they've been sad, they've been a celebration, in a sense. Like if mm-hmm. you can write something that sad and feel so low and emotional, then surely it meant a lot. So in a way, I think they've never felt sort of bitchy or kind of mean. They've always felt like a celebration, even if they've been sad. So I've always had a good response from doing that, and. And, but I don't know how I'd feel if someone said I don't want you to release that; it's too personal. But it has been, it has been on my mind before to to kind of think about that, and I guess that's why I've always been one to send that song to that person before it comes out to the public, just so that they get to hear it and feel like they heard it first. You know? Yeah, I understand that. I definitely have had similar experiences. I've come to this point where it it does depend. But again, it's like in those really emotional moments where I think the best songs come from, it kind of just pours out and you're just like, this is the song. Like, I, I can't really change it. I can't really edit these details. This is this is the art. It's so true. And to end, what piece of advice would you give to an artist who is just starting their career right now? Well, <laughs> the, first pe- the first thing that came to mind was I have no idea because... I'm seeing I, I'm seeing people get famous on TikTok for doing you know God knows what and getting loads of followers, and I've I've never I've never downloaded TikTok to my phone, so I, I've heard it's the the way to to get big these days, <laughs> get big quick. No, I I mean there's so many the world's changed so quickly in the last few years, and it continues to just evolve and adapt and become something so different to what we all know. But I think because of that, the only thing you can really bank on is is yourself and 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 what you what you offer. And so I'd always just say to any artist is just focus so much more on your music than anything else. Don't don't get sort of I don't know. Don't get kind of um, what's the word enticed. Don't get enticed by or kind of seduced by this kind of quick way to do it. I think anything worth having takes time genuinely and it takes takes a long while to build any you know if you want to be good at piano you've got to sit there for so many hours and practice if you want to get good at songwriting you've got to write loads and loads and loads and loads of songs I think we get seduced a lot of the time by the fastest way of doing something and the easiest way of doing something and I think TikTok Instagram YouTube not to, I'm not bitching about what goes on there because I think there's some amazing people do amazing things on the internet. But I think it's also, it represents a slightly kind of fast food approach to, to, to music and to being good at something. And I'd say that 
if if you're just starting out, then just get as get as good as you can get at whatever you want to do. And if that means, you know, promoting yourself once you're as good as you can get at, on TikTok. But I think focus on what you want to be, what you want to express, what music you want to make. Just be as inspired as you can by everything you hear anyone do that's amazing. And yeah, just focus on what you love about music and the rest will fall into place. I love that. But I also think that your initial statement has a lot of wisdom to it. I don't know. And I think that that's a really valuable piece of advice for people. Like, I don't know. You don't know. The label doesn't know. Like, no one really knows. And we're all just trying our best to figure it out. I'm glad that you've added wisdom to my lack of wisdom. <laughs> I'll take no, it. No, no, I'll no. Take no. It. no, I'll take it. I like that you've, you've found wisdom. <laughs> yeah. I, I, well, I think that there's always wisdom when you don't think there is. It's like the, the simplest things kind of have the most to offer you. Um, but thank you so much for doing Pleasure. this. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Anatomy of an Artist is a podcast created, recorded, and edited by me, Verite. It was produced by Vanessa Magos with the help of Yesenia Bonilla. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.